So today we are starting a new four-week sermon series on the book of Jude. And I uh, also wittingly called it Hey Jude. <laughs> it's basically um, my mission as a pastor is fulfilled now. I really wanted to be a pastor so one day I could preach sermon series on the book of Jude and call it Hey Jude. Um, I mean, this is what you get when you call a pastor to your church who's a musician, so I'm just saying. But you know what? It's a... Uh, it's a fascinating book. It's short. It's only one chapter. One chapter. Most Bibles, it's only one page in your Bible. It's really easy to skip to skip over Jude, you know, to go from 3rd John to Revelation, not even realizing there's a book called Jude in there. It's short. It's only one chapter. And something I would encourage you to do this week, actually, somebody, is read through the whole whole book. One chapter, it's great to read through a whole book in one sitting because you get like a sort of an overarching view of the whole letter. It's short, but it's dense. It is thick. Um, you know, it's, it's heavy. It's a heavy book. I'm not, I'm not going to kid you here, all right? It's not all la dar and Jesus loves you and everything's warm and cozy, all right? It does end on an amazing doxology, praise of God. So that's, the end of the sermon series is going to be really uplifting. But there's going to be some heavy stuff to go through in the middle here. And it's a reminder to us that our faith is about the good times and the bad times. That there are places and times in our life where we do need, with grace, that correction, that rebuke from God about things in our lives that are not honoring to it. So it's a heavy book. It's dense. And as I mentioned in my uh, my note in the e-letter, if you if you read it, it, I said we'll be jumping into some areas such as hypergrace, dodgy doctrine, Angelic rebellion and a dispute between the archangel Michael and the devil. So it's going to be a ride. It's going to be a ride. There's, there's a lot of stuff in this book, a lot of things to get through. But let's jump in here. Let's. We got to set some, uh, give you some context and setting here. So first of all, who wrote Jude? Who wrote the letter of Jude? Well, we know it was someone named Jude, or more perhaps precisely Judah. That would be the Hebrew pronunciation of his name. Or Judas is the Greek that we see in the New Testament. And uh, But which Judah? Which Jude? Because it was a very common name back in Jesus' day. A lot of people called Jude. And we actually find in the New Testament there are five Judases mentioned. Right? We have Judas Iscariot. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. We have somebody called Judas the Galilean. He was an infamous revolutionary. We have Judas, the son of James, who was also one of the 12 disciples. There was two Judases who were part of the 12. There's a Judas called, also called Barsabas. And then there's Judas, the brother of James, that we have here. So which one is it? Well, fortunately, verse 1 gives us the answer. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, James mentioned here is the James who became a prominent leader in the early church, and he was Jesus' half-brother. So this Jude is also one of Jesus' half-brothers. Now, also you get a little uncomfortable, like, what do you mean? What do you mean Jesus' half-brothers? How do we know Jesus had half-brothers? Well, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us. Take a listen here uh, to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Mark 6, 1 to 3. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. 
When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. We find the same account, the same names listed in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And then we also have Paul attesting to James, being Jesus' half-brother in Galatians, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Paul speaking here, he says this. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And stay with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Again, if that, if that unnerves you a little bit, or you're like, I don't know about that, right? One thing to remember here, none of that detracts from Jesus' deity and being God or his humanity, or from him being born to the Virgin Mary. None of that changes. But what we can deduct now and surmise is that this letter is written by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. When was the letter written? The letter was probably written, most scholars think, somewhere in the late mid-50s, mid-60s, somewhere in that time frame. Okay. Now put that in context, that means that this letter was written only between 20 and 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. For ancient antiquity, that is really, really close to the event. It means that this Jude would have known Jesus. He would have been an eyewitness account to Jesus. He would have uh, hung with Jesus. He would have played with Jesus. He would have listened to his teaching. This is coming directly from somebody who knew Jesus personally. And when somebody who's known Jesus directly writes something, I don't know about you, but I pay attention. So we know who wrote it, when it was written. Now, who did you write the letter to? Because I don't know about you, when I write a letter, it's because I'm anticipating somebody's going to read it, right? So who did you write this to? Who were the original recipients of this letter? Well, it sounds like it was to a specific church community. Um, and as we'll, we'll find later on into the letter, that was predominantly uh, probably made up of Jewish believers, people who come from Judaism to Christianity. But Jude also gives us the answer in the second half of verse 1. He says, To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, if you notice there, there's the people this letter is written to are identified in three ways. To those who've been called, to those who are loved in God the Father, to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. So what does all that mean? Let's start with to those who've been called. Um, are some of you, are some of you familiar with this TV show called The Chosen? Yeah, if you're not, it's really, it's a great, it's a really uh, fun show. It's a, it's a, the largest crowdfunded, I think, TV show in history. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a show about the life of Jesus and his disciples. And it's called The Chosen because it's talking about the people that Jesus chooses and, and brings around him, right? Well, it could have very easily also been called The Called. It doesn't quite have the same ring, but it could have been called The Called because it is about Jesus choosing those who are going to be called to him. 
Well, it's no different here in Jude's letter or for us sitting here today. If, you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called by God. God has chosen a people and we are among them. Amen? You are, we are a chosen people. And you know, if you're sitting here today and maybe you're like, I don't know what I believe. Or you're watching online, you're like, I, I don't know if I'm, you know, I'm curious about Jesus, but I still don't know what I believe. Well, guess what? You, you're still, you are still being called right now. Because you wouldn't be sitting here this morning or you wouldn't be tuning in online if God wasn't doing something in your heart. Who's calling you? The Holy Spirit is calling you. So if you're here today, it's not by coincidence. Coincidences don't exist in God's kingdom. You're here because God's called you. Not only has God called you, but secondly, we are loved by and in God the Father. Now again, this is primarily referring to believers, right? But it nails home a deeper truth about God the Father. God the Father loves us. The Father loves you. I think with God the Father, um, this is one of the places where, as, as Christians, we can get really hung up and distort the character of God and our view of God the Father. Because you know, most of the time, we're most of us we're pretty we're cool with Jesus, right? Jesus is the he's the compassionate one and the merciful one. He's the you know, let who's without sin cast the first stone. We can all relate to Jesus. We know Jesus loves us, but then sometimes we get this idea that the Father. He's sort of looking down on us like this. And waiting to say, ah, what have you done wrong now? Do you ever find yourself thinking of the Father like that? Like, like his whole goal is to bring condemnation on you? That is a distortion and a twisting of the Father's love for you. If, if, if you feel like God doesn't love you or somehow he's disproving of you, remember this. It's the Father who sent us his son, Jesus. That's how much he loves us. We are beloved. We are the beloved of the Father. And you know, there's, there's an important distinction we have to make when we think about God and how he sees us and how he relates us and how he loves us. Because God loves you. He doesn't always love what you do. Big distinction. God loves you. He doesn't always love what you do. Another way of thinking of that is that God's love for us is unconditional, but his approval and affirmation of what we do is not. You know, we're told today that that's what love is. It's just affirming everything and anything about a person. And that's love. That's not love according to God. True love with grace and gentleness will will correct and rebuke when necessary because it's for the greater good of the person. You know, if you're a parent, you know this. You know this. There are things our kids do that we don't approve of, but does that change your love for them? 
you know, maybe, maybe your, your, your son's out there and he's, he's hanging out and he's smoking too much and he's drinking too much and he's, he's hanging out with some sketchy kids. You might not approve of what he's doing, but that doesn't change your love for him. Maybe your daughter's dating a guy you don't approve of, right? You just know there's, there's something kind of trouble about him and you know he's really only after one thing, but she's madly in love with him or thinks she is. You don't approve of what they're doing, but does that change your love for your daughter? Of course not. Just the other morning, Sarah and I woke up to a kitchen counter full of heaps of sugar <laughs> and stickiness all over the place. And it was, it was on the, the floor, right? The wood floor of the kitchen. I'm walking through the kitchen. It's like, you know, it's sticky sugar everywhere. All over the counter, right? And it's because our four and our soon-to-be-six-year-old daughters had tipped out sugar all over the kitchen. They thought this would be a really fun thing to do while mum and dad are sleeping. <laughs> Sarah and I, we didn't approve of what they did. But it didn't change our love for them. And it's the same with God towards us. God, he loves us, but he doesn't love everything we do. So that we and the original recipients of Jude's letter are, we're called, we are loved by God the Father, and thirdly, we are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, being kept for Jesus Christ? Well, the Greek word that Jude uses here is this word tereo, and it means to, literally it means to retain in custody or to keep watch over and to guard, to keep in a certain condition. What's Jude talking about? He's talking about your salvation. So in a nutshell, it means you're secure. If God has called you and he loves you and you accept his son Jesus, then you will be kept safe and secure in Jesus Christ. So the recipients of Jude's letter are believers of a church community that Jude is probably involved with. And it's also for all believers such as ourselves, because it has been preserved and included in the canon of scripture and you know that's a reminder to all of us when we read the bible that there is there's an original context for the letter or the book that was written and an original audience but it also has meaning and relevance for us today and that's why it's been captured in the in the holy canon of scripture so now we know who the author is we know the approximate date when it was written and we know who it was written to. So now the question becomes, what's the purpose of Jude writing this short letter? Because when you read it, it almost reads like a little, like a sermon. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had something not go the way you expected? You've planned for something. And you have an... A, an expectation of how it's going to go in your mind, and then the day of, it all goes to pot. Everything goes wrong. You know, you, you plan the wedding, and it rains, and you don't have a tent set up. You know, you plan something, and it doesn't go the way you expected. Well, this is exactly what happens here with Jude, because he planned to write a very different letter to the one that we actually get. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, 
I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So the original plan had been to write a letter to the church about the salvation they share. That was what Jude planned. And it would have probably been this upbeat letter about how amazing it is that they're saved through the grace and goodness of God through Jesus. And instead, Jude says he was compelled. That's a pretty strong word, by the way. He was compelled, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. To contend for the faith. The word that Jude uses there for contend, it was often used in the sense of competing in an an athletic event. Right? And, you know, as you know, in the boxing world, the martial arts world, right? Fighters are often called contenders. Yeah, you could have been a contender. Yeah? Contenders, because they're fighting, they're fighting for the prize. They're fighting for the championship, the belt, the trophy. Well, here Jude is saying, I, I, I needed to, I was compelled to write to you, to urge you, to encourage you, to exhort you, to fight for the faith. To defend it against attack. And here's a crucial point to remember about Jude's letter as a whole. You know, as I said, a lot of it is, it's, it's heavy. And it's dense, but a good chunk of it, he spends condemning false teachers in their midst. But you know what ultimately the purpose of what Judy is writing here is? It's to motivate. It's to exhort. It's, it's to encourage, to motivate and exhort the people in this church to contend for the faith. Simply put, Judy's saying, keep the faith. Keep the faith. And I, I want to encourage us here today with the same charge. Keep the faith. Because it's getting harder and will likely continue to get harder to keep the faith. To stand firm in the face of the cultural headwinds that we face, to remain faithful to God's word, to scripture, to live by God's morality and values as laid out in the Bible as opposed to the world's values and morals. You know, Jesus, when he was talking about the end times, he touched upon this um, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Listen to this, verses 10 to 13. This is Jesus talking about in the end times what it will look like. And he said, at that time, many will turn away from the faith And will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That could be a commentary, couldn't it, on our present day times. Love of most will grow old, uh, will grow, will grow cold, should I say. Many will fall from the faith. And, and we do see that, don't we? We see people who are, uh, are walking uh, away from the, their faith or, you know, how many people have abandoned the faith or, or at least sidelined it to mean next to nothing. You know, people say they believe in Jesus, but nothing in their life reflects that. Nothing in how they live their life. Many will turn away from the faith, but we have to keep the faith. <clears throat> Because the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
Now notice that Jude calls this faith the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. That word entrusted, it means to to have or pass down a, a tradition, a sacred tradition. You know, and we all have traditions, don't we? We've got, we've got the holidays coming up soon, haven't we? We've got Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I bet all of you have some little family traditions that maybe only your family does. You know, or, you know, maybe it's, you know, great grandma's apple pie recipe. Because nobody makes apple pie like you know, the great grandma, you know, she's got this special, you know, she puts this special amount of cinnamon in and things like that, right? That nobody else does. I remember one of the things I loved about uh, growing up on Christmas Day for me was we would have um, we'd have our Christmas lunch. It's, it's kind of more customary in the UK. You, you have Christmas lunch. She's somewhere between twelve and two, and you know it's, the, it's your big meal, and, and you do that, and then you sink into a food coma and wait for the uh, you know for three o'clock for the Queen's speech, which will now be the King's speech. And that's what you do. you know, and you sit there and you're stuffed, right? But you've got a bowl of peanuts, which you keep eating, even though you're not hungry at all. It's so full, you know, not a mouthful, right? But what I used to love is my mum would put on this big meal, and um, she she made the most amazing roast potatoes. Just I've never eaten roast potatoes. Like I, I love potatoes, you know, British and all. Um, but she made these amazing roast potatoes that they would be, um, they would kind of like be hard on the bottom, crunchy on the bottom, and soft in the middle and on the top. And uh, recently, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, my mum passed away in 20, uh, 20, 2005. And I asked my sister, do you have mum's recipe for those roast potatoes? Because I was like, what, what was the key to how delicious they were? And she said, well, it was, it was a couple of things. She used goose fat. And she absolutely drenched them in lard. <laughs> That's why they taste so good. <laughs> but it was a, that's a, that was a tradition that my, my sister knows how to do those, you know, potatoes. And next time I'm over, I'm going to like, oh, okay, show me how to make these. You know, it was a tradition for our family. And right here, the faith that Jude is talking about is the one, the tradition that's been passed has come straight from Jesus and his disciples. It's amazing. First generation that this faith has been faithfully transmitted. But Jude's seeing a threat. And you know how it is. If you let something creep in when it's in its inception, it will destroy the whole thing. Now, why is Jude telling the church that they need to fight or contend for the faith? Again, verse 4 gives us the answer. It says, For certain individuals who condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. So Jude's saying we need to contend for the faith. We need to fight for the faith because certain individuals have, have snuck into the church. They've infiltrated the church. They've, they've secretly slipped in, Jude says. Which, you know what that means? That means that the church community was not aware that they were false teachers. They probably looked like they fit in and sounded like they fit in. They probably said all the right things and sang all the right songs. But Jude makes four charges against them. First of all, he says that the scriptures condemn them. Listen to what the uh, disciple Peter has to say in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. 
They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has been sleep, has not been sleeping. You notice that Peter's basically saying the same thing as Jude. So the scriptures spoken against them. And secondly, they are ungodly, Jude says. Now, that word in godly, it means impious. What does impious mean? It means being irreverent or not showing reverence or respect, especially towards God. So these people have, if you like, weaseled their way into the church. And the problem is, it's not that they don't believe in God, but that they are in rebellion against God. They have no respect for God's values and morals, but instead want to do their own thing. It's really, it's a mirror of what's going on today with so many people. You know, a lot of people claim to believe in God. It's more than you think. But there's no respect, there's no reverence, there's no awe for God, there's no... uh, place for God in their lives. So the scriptures are spoken against them. They are ungodly. Thirdly, they have perverted God's grace into a license for immorality. God's grace. What is God's grace? God's grace is his unmerited and undeserved favor. God's grace says, you don't deserve this. You can't earn it, but I'm giving it to you anyway, because if you love my son Jesus, then you have my favor. Now the problem is here that these false teachers in the church, what they're doing is they're taking advantage of God's grace. You know, they're basically saying, well, hey, you know, I can do whatever I want. You know, God will forgive me whatever I do. You know, he's he's gracious and I know his grace covers me. So, you know, I'm just going to live the life of Riley and Hallelujah. The German theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he coined this phrase, cheap grace. And he wrote this, he says, cheap grace is a grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. So grace doesn't cost, it's a cheap grace because it doesn't cost you anything. Now, there's a similar twisting of God's grace that we, that's emerged today. It's called hypergrace. Anybody familiar with that phrase at all? Hypergrace. Well, quite a lot of churches have embraced it because it sounds cozy and warm and, you know, pulls the people in. But hypergrace is it's a wave of teaching that emphasizes the grace of God to the exclusion of other essential teachings such as repentance and confession of sin. So hypergrace, it teaches that all sin, past, present, and future, has already been forgiven, which is true, but so that there's no need for a believer to ever confess it. I don't need to come before God with anything, because, you know, it's all taken God, you know, because grace. But we cheapen God's grace when we take it for granted by living our lives as if the cross and Jesus don't mean anything. Fourthly, this is the fourth last charge Jude has against these, these false teachers. He says, they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So these, these false teachers, they're denying Christ. And here's the thing. It sounds like they were not denying Jesus through what they said and what they said they believed, but they were denying Jesus through their behavior. 
Actions speak louder than words, right? So they might have been saying all the right things and praise be Jesus and all this. Hence why they had slipped in secretly among them. But their actions, which we'll be learning more about next week, they were telling a different story. Jesus said, if, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And they were clearly not obeying Jesus' teachings and commands. Okay, so, how does all that apply to us? Because you might be sitting here thinking, well, that's fascinating, and you know, but what is a church about 2,000 years ago that was dealing with some issues? What does that have to do with me sitting here today? Well, I want to leave you with three points, or food for thought to think about. Firstly, do we see any parallels with the church capital C, today. Between this church that we read about in Jude so far and the church today in society. I'd say we do. There are people turning away from the faith and there are any number of false teachers in churches around across the country. It seems like every day we're reading about a new scandal with a pastor or a minister. We have to have discernment and wisdom about the teachers we listen to, about the churches we attend. And there's plenty out there and there's plenty online, isn't there, as well, that we can listen to. And so often these kind of churches will have certain hallmarks, certain red flags that I want to give you a few of to look out for. So first of all, often... Churches that are turning away from God, they do not see the scripture, the Bible, as God's authoritative and inspired word. They water it down. They deny or they subtly dilute the cross and resurrection of Jesus. They endorse and they they celebrate all kinds of immorality. They never or rarely talk about sin. They promote hyper-grace, which I mentioned earlier. And I, I could go on. But my main point here is if you encounter a teacher like that, I have one word for you. Run. Run. Run away from lies and run towards truth. We must have discernment about what is faithful to God and what is not. Secondly, what Jude has written here should motivate us to do some self-examination. Not in a condemning way, but in a convicting way, right? Are there areas in my own life where I'm taking God's grace for granted? Are there areas in our lives where we are denying Jesus by how we act? Not deny with a big D, where we, we, we turn away from Jesus, but maybe deny with a small D. Little things we do that we know are, are things God doesn't, is not pleased with. And then thirdly, I would say what? Jude has written so far should motivate us and encourage us to, as I said earlier, stand firm in the faith. I mentioned there are plenty of cultural headwinds facing those of us who want to live an authentic Christian life, a life that is faithful to God and his word. And I want to say this, don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged. Jesus said that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. True authentic Christianity will often butt heads with the culture of the day 
Why? Because God's ways are not the world's ways. But be encouraged. Keep the faith. Let's pray.